Welcome back to the C1 Project. Today, we're exploring the lives of Princess Walada and Ibn Zaydun. Some of their poetry is featured in Hafla, C1's third studio album. We're joined again by Professor Raymond Farron, Dr Fitzroy Morrissey and Professor Amira Benison to learn more about this couple who produced such captivating and rich poetry marvelled at nearly a thousand years later. Walada is a fascinating figure. She is the daughter of the Umayyad Caliph al-Mustakfi, who reigned very briefly for only 16 months in the 1020s, and this is in the final days of Umayyad rule in the period known as the Fitna, the civil war, the disintegration of Umayyad society. So this is a politically very turbulent era. At the same time, it's an era of cultural efflorescence, and Walada is one of the most interesting manifestations of that efflorescence. Like many of the Umayyads, she's said to have been blonde-haired and blue-eyed. She received a thorough education in literature and established a famous literary salon in Cordoba, the capital of Al-Andalus, which the later Andalusian anthologist Ibn Basam described as the rendezvous of the well-born. So it attracted many important, prominent political and cultural figures. She is famous for her spirit of independence and boldness, and this is reflected in the poetry that's attributed to her. Wait for me whenever darkness falls. For night, I see contains a secret best. If the heavens felt this love I feel for you, the sun would not shine, nor the moon rise, nor would the stars launch out upon their journey. Walada's poem was written at the beginning of their relationship. Here she's taking the initiative. The poem is an invitation. They wanted to go out together and walk outside the city and under the cover of darkness because rumours would spread. I think she was concerned about that. This is a beautiful poem from the very early stage, the happy stage, the beautiful stage, yeah. The happy stage was sadly not to last. We'll come back to that a little later. But first, let's continue learning more about Walada. What made her so special? So Walada was both a gatherer of poets, a critic of others' poetry, but also a poet herself. And this poetry manifests the spirit of boldness which has been attributed to her. So it's said that she refused to wear the veil and that she had uh, some verses embroidered on the sleeves of her gown in which she declared her greatness and, and pride in herself and her willingness to let her lover kiss her. And this boldness on, on the part 
of a Muslim woman, I would suggest, is one of the reasons for the enduring appeal of Walada. She had become a symbol of female emancipation in medieval Al-Andalus. I mean, it's difficult to know how much of this is sort of exaggeration and literary creation and how much is a, a voracious <laughs> report of what was going on. It's certainly not inconceivable. And certainly women in courts who were from, of high status had a certain amount of latitude in whom they met, who they interacted with and what they did. While the boldness of Olada was probably fairly untypical, she was by no means the only female poet of Al-Andalus. So we can think of the Abadid ruler Al-Mu'tamid's wife and daughter who also wrote poetry. And there were also female poets who were from the lower classes of society. So one of the most famous female poets of Al-Andalus is Nazhun, who probably began her life as a slave. And she is famous for her love poems, as well as her very bold invectives. And women we know at this period also worked as book copyists in the market of Cordoba, and as secretaries, teachers, librarians, physicians, and lawyers. And Ibn Hazm, the famous author of Tok al-Hamama, wrote that women taught him the Quran uh, when he was a child in the harem. So Walada is special, but not unique. Women were very much an active part of the Andalusian world of poetry. They could access poetry as a form of cultural capital and garner respect alongside men. Back to Walada's literary salons. And basically her house, they called it like arena for the stallions of poetry and prose. And everyone was trying to impress her uh, with their witty lines or something. And she was a poet herself and a critic. And that's where she really, that's where we hear about her. That's where she comes into prominence. And it's where she encountered Ibn Zaydun for the first time. So Ibn Zaydun uh, was born in the early 11th century to uh, an aristocratic Arab family which claimed descent from the Quraysh, which is the tribe of Muhammad. And he received a thorough education in history, philosophy, the Arabic language and literature. He was eight years older than her. She was probably in her mid-twenties when they met, and he was in his early or mid-thirties. And he was one of the people invited, or he came to this soiree, this literary soiree, and he was, as a young man, he was a revolutionary. He actually took part in the revolution that toppled her, uh, the Umayyad Caliphate, that she was a princess. And yeah, but then 10 years later, he starts showing up at her house, and he's also known for his poetry. In fact, he's probably the most famous poet for, of the eight centuries of Al-Andalus, or one of the top two or three. As well as being a poet, Ibn Zaydun was very much involved in the politics of his day, particularly in the politics of the early Ta'ifa period, this period in which uh, the Umayyad Caliphate has split up into a number of smaller principalities. Ibn Zaydun is said to have helped found one of these principalities, the Joharid dynasty in Cordoba, and he is said to have served as ambassador for the first ruler of Cordoba after the fall of the Umayyads. The pair met in Cordoba and their relationship began. And the first part was uh, dreamy and wonderful, and each one is expressing how 
much in love they are with the other person. They start going out to the park together at night. This lasted for a while and is preserved in their poetry to each other. But despite having a career as a diplomat, Ibn Zaydun made a string of bad decisions, which ultimately cost him dearly. She was a proud woman. She wrote about her own beauty in her poetry. And one time, apparently, when he was away on a diplomatic mission, she wrote some lines saying how much she missed him. And she closed her five-line poem with a verse saying that she hoped there'd be plenty of rain so the land would, uh, flowers would grow up and sort of be beautiful for him. And unfortunately, he wanted to be her teacher. And he said, in so many words, I appreciate the sentiment you're expressing in this last line, but because of you're talking about so much rain and actually too much rainfall will cause flooding and it actually sounds like you're wishing, you know, destruction on me. So there's a way you could actually express the idea a little more gently. And this is maybe this, if you said this. And evidently she didn't appreciate that at all because it was a love poem that she had sent to him. But he came back to Cordoba and then later he made a bigger mistake. He was at her salon and she had a slave girl named Utba who was either singing or playing the oud and performing. And he was very enthusiastically following the performance. And we don't have all the details, but we know that he just at the end, he spontaneously called for an encore. And I guess the real, the devil is in the details, how much he, maybe he was looking at her, staring at her, but he got up and clapped and called for an encore and he forgot where he was and that he was actually just a guest in her house. So she took offense that all this interest he was showing right in front of her, in front of all the guests, in her slave girl. So then she wrote a poem to him saying that he had bad taste and he, he was not interested in the, the branch that had all the fruit and was interested in this dry branch and her slave girl. And this is kind of the beginning of the end, actually. We do have these rebukes, and then he sends her an apology after that, and he wishes she would remove the mask of anger she's wearing. She did that if she would only smile at him, he would bow down and worship her beauty. I mean, he's really almost not groveling, but he's trying to win her back. We know now that Walada was a very proud woman, so this was never going to be an easy task. On top of that, there were plenty of rivals for her affection. And at this time, a third party comes in who's actually a very highly placed government minister, Ibn Abdus, that stepped right in, and it seems like that she started uh, seeing him after Ibn Zaydun had offended her. Ibn Zaydun went completely crazy when he saw someone else taking his place, and he realized he was losing Walada. I mean, he, he felt like he probably had everything, and then it was crazy then to also express all his admiration for her slave girl when he was already in a relationship with Walada. But when he sees this higher government minister starting to see her, and he wasn't a poet, but we know through Ibn Zaydun that he, she was starting to be with him, he goes through all these steps. At first, he tries to make her jealous and as if he doesn't care. He's like, well, I heard she's with someone else. I'm actually very satisfied with this beautiful woman. And he makes unfavorable comparisons. Sure, Walad is like, a star like a Saturn, but this new one is actually bigger and brighter. She's Jupiter to me. So I don't think that made her feel too happy. And then he was mocked at court or in Cordoba by people who were saying, look, she's now going out with your rival, Ibn Abdus. And he feigns disregard. And he says, you know, I hear that she's now going out with him. 
and he said, that's perfectly fine with uh, me. She was like a tasty meal. And I picked all the most delicious parts and enjoyed them. And then I left, I gave the leftovers for the, this mouse figure. Walada probably heard these lines and was, rightly, pretty offended. If that wasn't enough to put her off for good, Ibn Zaydun had another trick up his sleeve. And then actually he stole her identity and wrote this uh, satiric letter, this very eloquent, funny letter, but he pretends that he's Walada and writes this mocking letter to his rival. Like, how would I be interested in you? I've gone out with this great person and, you know, I was with a stallion. Why would I descend to an ox? That sort of thing. Signed, Walada. And surely <laughs> she didn't appreciate it. And uh, he actually ended up going to prison for over a year and a half because of this letter insulting the... Uh, and evidently he distributed copies or something, but word got out about this letter. So he was in, in prison in Cordoba for about a year and a half. And that's really when, at the last phase, he had a change of heart and started regretting what he had done. He sends her poetry from prison, uh, but he's not released. And then a, a childhood friend actually helps him escape, and he goes to Seville, where for about a year or some period of time, he's still not able to forget her. And he sends this 50-line eloquent poem, trying to reminding her of their happy times initially, and trying to rekindle her passion and entreating her to, you know, please just send a response or acknowledge a receipt of this poem. And again, she was decisive and it pulls at the heart when you read this poem, but you have to remember what she had gone through. So she didn't respond to him. And that's almost the end, although he went back near Cordoba to this sort of royal suburb where apparently they had visited one time. You can see Cordoba in the distance and he sends her this final poem, you know. I'm here visiting our old haunts, and I'm thinking about you, and even though you've moved on, you know, I'm still your devoted lover type thing. And that's pretty much how the story ends, because she never responds to him. Ibn Zaydun eventually married a slave girl and had children. He settled in Seville, where he was also a teacher to other renowned Andalusian poets. As for his love for Walada... Surely Walada was the great the love of his life, and... Maybe he pined for, but it seems like this lasted for about five years, their relationship, and it ended terribly for him. And eventually, when she just wasn't responding, I think he kind of, to some extent, moved on. And as for Walada herself? She continued her life. She didn't marry, but I think she probably, her father, maybe gave her a very bad example of marriage initially. For whatever reason, maybe she didn't want to be uh, she was an independent woman and lived in Cordoba and had continued her relationship with this other minister and was probably happy keeping it that way until he died uh, in old age about 10 years before her and then she died staying and remaining in Cordoba. Okay, more now? There we have it. A brief exploration into two prolific figures and their tumultuous love for one another. You heard the voices of Amira Benison, Fitzroy Morrissey, Raymond Farron, Phoebe McIndoo, Maria Camila Sanchez and me, Emily Naylor. Join us next time as we begin to meet the different members of the orchestra who created Siwan's third studio album, Hafla. Thanks for listening. Ni la hubieses preferido, abandonado la rama cargada, 
de frutos por su belleza, inclinándote hacia el ramo estéril que jamás ha florido.